Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I'm glad to be joined by Ken Feinberg, a giant in the alternative dispute resolution world. His career is littered with high-profile engagements, including overseeing several major settlement funds, such as the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund, as well as managing distributions on behalf of Boeing for 737 MAX crash victim families, plus the Volkswagen Compensation Fund for U.S. owners affected by its emissions scandal. In recent years, however, you might know him best for his mediation efforts and bankruptcies centered on mass torts such as mediating in Purdue Pharma or Emirates Talc, or being appointed as an estimation expert in both LTL management cases. As far as I know, he's also our only guest so far to be played by Michael Keaton in a movie. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, honored to be on. So first I wanna get just a little bit of background on you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into law and then how you transitioned into this ADR specialty? I thought I'd be an actor When I went to undergraduate school, I had every intention of becoming a uh, theater and movie actor. But my father gave me very good advice. He said, "Uh, Ken, uh, most movie actors uh, end up waiting on tables for a big break. Why don't you uh, turn your talents to the law world and become a, a lawyer? Very good advice. I became a lawyer. And one day in 1984, very distinguished judge, Jack Weinstein, federal court in New York, asked me to mediate the Agent Orange Vietnam veterans class action. Vietnam veterans claiming injuries due to exposure to the defoliant Agent Orange in Vietnam. And after I settled that case in eight weeks, we got the largest tort settlement in history at the time. My entire career changed and I became an ADR mediator and claims administrator. In the intro a little bit, we mentioned uh, the the 9-11 fund. So there's a a long path in there in the middle. Getting into the practice a little bit, most of, if not a lot of these cases, they're really, really large and there's a lot of different moving parts to wrangle. Can you tell us how you approach dealing with something just of that sheer size? Well, you've got to structure the process. That's the key. You find out who the participants are, chemical industry, Department of Justice in 9-11, World Trade Center victims, Pentagon victims, airline victims. Who are the players who are eligible to participate in the ADR process. Once you sort of design a structure for resolving claims, you then move into the process of determining value, eligibility criteria, timing, et cetera. Design followed by implementation. When you put it like that, it almost sounds like a form of engineering. It is. It's what we would, you know, it's a very good phrase. It's what we would call claims architecture, deciding who will be involved and what their roles will be. Claims architecture. Makes perfect sense to me. Another angle of a lot of these cases is that they can be emotionally or or even politically charged. Is there a difference to the way you approach them when you have to take into account, for lack of a better phrase, you know, sensibilities, feelings? Any mass claim program, whether it's BP, 9-11, Boeing, Agent Orange, Boston Marathon bombings, any mass claim program, you have to deal with the fundamental issue of emotion. Innocent victims and their families 
their lives ripped apart by an unforeseen tragedy. And you've got to build into that claims architecture a process for dealing with that emotion. That is pivotal uh, to the success of any uh, mediation or claims administration program. Absolutely. So with LTL, Emirates, and Purdue, just to name a few of yours, plus we've got others, Aldrich Pump, Best Wall, uh, and AREO, to name a few others. Feels like we're seeing kind of a shift of mass torts into Chapter 11 as a venue. We talked a little bit in the pre-show about the ABI conference, and I recall you talking about how they're gravitating towards bankruptcy. And can you tell us a little bit about what you think is driving that shift? What's the alternative? I mean, in any mass claims program, one of the first questions to ask, what will be the venue for aggregating these claims? You can't process them one at a time in a courtroom, like the Model T or the 19th century. Justice delayed is justice denied. What do you do to aggregate claims? Well, for years, there was a hope among plaintiff and defendant companies. Maybe the class action. Rule 23 is the way to go. Well, in the mass tort arena, the Supreme Court's been reluctant to validate ever since the Amchem decision. The class action won't work most of the time. MDL, the multi-district panel, at least aggregate the claims in federal court. Well, that's federal court. What about the overwhelming number of state cases that aren't subject to MDL rules? Bankruptcy has become, over the last few years, a sort of last alternative as a device, a structure, to aggregate claims for resolution and end the litigation. Now, whether or not the courts will recognize bankruptcy as a as a um, eligible forum remains to be seen, I must say. But in the last few years, it's become the darling of devices, legal devices, to aggregate claims for efficient resolution. Circling back a little bit to we talked about the emotional issue. Do you think there's any extra interplay with that when we come to bankruptcy? Because I do think that some people would say that bankruptcy has kind of a reputation as being one of the more calculated legal spaces. You know, people talk about plaintiff's law in federal and state court being very, obviously, there's jury trials, but there's a lot much more human element that I think people are used to. I don't worry about that. If, in fact, bankruptcy can be found by the courts to be an eligible device to aggregate claims. I think you can then set up a process for evaluating claims that would build into it uh, the opportunity to be heard, uh, the opportunity for an individual claimant in the the bankruptcy to receive due process. I, I, I think you could do that. The big question right now, before you even get to dealing with the emotional onslaught of individual claims, is whether or not the bankruptcy concept will be validated by the courts as an appropriate device for aggregating claims. Right. And at that point, we're talking about, you know, the potential for the Supreme Court to eventually get and get into things. And they are generally not big on Chapter 11 cases. 
you know better than I. I know, <laughs> I know the timeliness of this interview. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear appeals by the U.S. trustee in Purdue, in the Purdue case, as to whether or not bankruptcy is an appropriate forum to provide, you know, extended protection to, uh, in that case, the Sackler family members. What in bankruptcy? The scope of a channeling injunction. Who knows? Maybe in 18 months, we'll be back here talking about that decision. Two years. Who knows? Going over to LTL a little bit. So your role is, or was, depending on how you view the uh, dismissal stages, somewhat unique because you came in as a court-appointed estimation expert rather than really being brought on by a party in interest. And it's also not exactly mediation. Can you tell us a little bit about that role and how it came about? My role in LTL 1 and 2 was strictly the creativity and the outlook taken by Judge Michael Kaplan, the bankruptcy judge. Very, very smart judge. Uh, the parties, J&J, LTL, and the plaintiffs, Obiso and Ovarian Cancer uh, Council, there already were mediators in the case. Judge Kaplan had already court-appointed some excellent mediators. He decided that what he really needed, in addition, was a Rule 706 expert with experience to come in and determine the volume and value of ovarian cancer and mesothelioma creditor claims. So over a four or five month period, I was engaged in the process, not of mediating, but of estimating the volume and value of current and future claims. Before I could complete my task, I was close. The Third Circuit uh, struck down the original LTL bankruptcy, terminating my role. And uh, in LTL 2, I was ready again begin or complete my task uh, when the motion to dismiss the bankruptcy was granted by Judge Kaplan. So I never completed my assignment, but I must say it was a rather creative and I think very efficient and appropriate step for the judge to take. Right. And, and I think if there's any case out there that kind of demands creativity right now, it's probably LTL. Well, I think these bankruptcies, Imra Cyprus, LTL, Best Wall, I mean, the, the uh, Arrow, the 3M cases. I mean, th there's a lot of creativity required right now if the, we get back to the basic issue. The basic issue is bankruptcy, the appropriate legal forum for resolving mass claims. And with that are a host of other issues. Very controversial. Right. And that means that these cases that we're talking about are essentially forming the go forward basis for how we treat that venue until we get legislation or Supreme Court guidance. So I think that's right. I think everybody is pursuing a, a sort of a roadmap within the bankruptcy um, foundation, within the bankruptcy court. Let's go forward despite objections from the U.S. trustee in bankruptcy and other uh, interested parties. And ultimately, I think, it, as you point out correctly, it is legislation and or Supreme Court validation or invalidation as to the very availability of the bankruptcy court to handle these mass claims. 
From the perspective of the role you were pl- uh, that you've played in LTL, I'm curious to see if you would have approached 2.0 differently from 1.0 based upon the different funding agreement, the idea that they brought on some of the plaintiff firms, or if you would have mostly viewed what your job is as essentially unchanged. I think it was unchanged. We might have had to supplement the methodology we had undertaken. Uh, we hadn't completed it. There may have been new additional players. So we may have had to revisit the calculations that we were in the middle of making. But the methodology, I think, the approach we took with our economic experts, I think would have been the same. Sure. We've kind of t- we've touched on this with a few of the cases that we're talking about here, too. But in Purdue and a bunch of these other ones, you had a massive universe of participants. You have government entities and regulators. You have even sovereign tribal entities, private creditors, and of course, this large, large amount of tort claimants. And you've got their plaintiff firms to deal with, their you know creditor committees. How do you go about wrangling all of these competing interests when you try to get them into a, medi- into a mediation room? Well, first of all, it sure helps, like in Purdue, where we had the blessing and approval of a court order, the bankruptcy judge, Judge Drain, brilliant jurist, brilliant, who saw the pragmatic benefit of designing a mediation that would require all interested parties to have a stake in the process. As you say, we have the state AG, some from red states, some from blue states. We have the federal government. We had private plaintiffs, we had hospitals, we had the tribes. There was a a wide range, there were doctors. I mean, there was a wide ranging defined group of bankruptcy creditors who were all fell under the mediation umbrella, designing the structure. And once we had that structure in place, the mediators, and there were two of us, I benefited greatly from the superior uh, experience and work of Lane Phillips, a former federal judge, now a mediator, very successful in California. And Lane and I worked out the structure and the process for mediating what Purdue had available, what the Sackler family was offering in addition and what all of the public and private creditors demanded. And we managed to coordinate all of that and come up with an agreed upon bankruptcy plan settlement. Absolutely. Uh, Bonus question. We've talked about the Supreme Court a little bit. When they eventually get to that Purdue case, who do you think are the judges to watch, the key ones who will be active on the panel? Oh, no. You know, that's a very good question, but I can say this. I don't believe that this case, the Purdue case, which the Supreme Court agreed yesterday to hear without any comment from any of the nine justices, no comment, just accept the case. I think the, the, uh, the Purdue appeal will likely be a statutory interpretation case. It's not an ideological issue. What does the First Amendment mean? Or what do we think of abortion? Or uh, what do we think of this or that? I think that this is a very clear-cut issue. I don't know what the resolution will be. But this is the type of appeal that might be 9-0, 8-1, crossing ideological boundaries. It's that type of case 
And I don't know which way it'll go. All right. Well, we'll set the betting odds for whenever they finally hear that. <laughs> yeah, I'll come back. We'll we'll uh, we'll have another uh, interview in eighteen months or two years to evaluate the uh, the meaning of the Supreme Court decision. Sounds good to me. I'll send you a I'll send you an invite for that meeting. <laughs> Last question. I want to circle back to your original career choice and ask you, what would your chosen genre of film be if you had gone through with the acting? Oh, I don't know. You know, looking back now, if I was going to be an actor, I would have grabbed any opportunity <laughs> to start my career. I wouldn't have, uh, um, you know, curtailed my outlook by looking only for comedy or drama. I would have been glad to get any job that could pay the rent. You know what? I hear that a lot uh, out here in L.A. You sure? Be, I'm sure you would enjoy the sunshine, but, you know, seems like D.C. has done OK for you so far. I think so. Well, Ken, it's been really great talking this afternoon. Uh, we've run through my list of topics, so we appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and your expertise. Pleased and honored for the invitation. Welcome me back. I'll return at any time. And I thank you for your good service in providing this interview to others. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode via Spotify or Apple. And you can find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at DebtWire.com. See you next time.